copy of God's Word or or use your phone and turn the Bible on. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. If you have the Bibles that we provide, uh, that'll be on page 857. 857. Well, my name is John Chastine. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church. And even in spite of the snow yesterday, um, we gather together as a staff team for a staff Christmas party. Um, Not only do we enjoy working together, man, we have a blast just spending time together. I think we got a picture up here um, of the crew from last night. You can see us there, uh, kids hanging out, and, um, and, and then some fun around food, some gifts, and some games. One of the games we played last night was how well do you know your elders? Now, Redemption, we have three elders. I'm one of them, Tanner, who preaches most Sundays, and then John Reddy. And I'll just say this, I know my elders much more better now as a result of playing that game. And one of them may or may not use hot water to brush their teeth. I'm, I'm just saying um, there were a lot of things that were, were brought into the light last night. Well, well, one of the things that you may or may not know about me is that I am a winter weather enthusiast. How many of you guys knew that already? Some of you guys, okay, I see a few hands there. Man, my fascination with weather began at an early age. Um, so you can imagine, like yesterday was like, was like heaven for me, right? You, you see a picture here. I'm in the backyard. We got the kids, snowball fights, sledding. I'm pulling them around on the sled. I love it. Like this is one of the reasons why I love Boston. Um, I, I love winter weather. Um, but as a kid growing up, I, I don't know. I can't like pinpoint why I enjoyed the weather. But I mean, just, just go with me for a second. We were at two degrees on Friday morning, and it's like 50-something this afternoon. I mean, isn't that cool? Like, does anybody just, okay, no, I'm just weird. But like that, like that does something in me. Just what's going on? Um, discerning part of it is it, it shows me the greatness of God and even the mystery of, of a lot and how things work in this world. Um, but I have a lot of memories etched in my mind as a kid many of them good. I mean, many of my memories, if I were to go back and just play some videos in my mind as a kid, many of them are going to be related to weather. I mean, that's just me. Now, I've also got a lot of memories of disappointment. For me, I probably should have set some more realistic expectations um, because I grew up in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. Not exactly the winter weather capital of the world. I mean, the middle of North Carolina, for us, like a big snow would have been three to five inches, and that would have potentially put the kids out of school for at least a week. I'm just saying, I know that like, you're like, for those of you up here in the south, that's, you know, we're a little different down there. Um, But uh, man, everything had to go right. For us to get a good snow, it had, everything had to be perfect. And so I remember as a kid, um, because of this enthusiasm, we didn't, you know, I didn't have an internet where I'm, or, or Twitter or Facebook. You know, I'm, I'm looking at and watching the Weather Channel. Um, I don't even know if anybody watches the Weather Channel these days. I don't watch it. But, you know, I'm looking at the Weather Channel, and you've got weather on the 8s or 7s or whatever. It happens every 10 minutes. And, and I'm looking for the 7-day forecast, and I want to know if I see that snow symbol on the forecast. Anybody? Anybody there? Anybody? Okay, we got one down here. Okay, I'm not alone. That makes me feel good today. Feeling a little isolated there for a second. Um, that was me. And if I saw that snow figure arise on the forecast, can you imagine what's starting to go on inside of here? I mean, I'm starting to get a little giddy. Um, and, and as I would go back daily or hourly or maybe every 10 minutes just to make sure it stayed there, my enthusiasm and my excitement would grow by leaps and bounds. And on the day where finally it's come that it's going to snow, my parents knew exactly where they could find me. I would find the most wide open window and plop myself right in front of it, and I would sit literally and stare waiting for that first flake to drop. If it was at night, I would find the street light 
And I would position myself so that I could just stare. And I, I'm like, sometimes I'm hallucinating and I think I see the first flake. And then you wait and you're like, nah, that wasn't it. That was me. Okay, I am. I'm weird. Like, that's okay. We're getting past that. A lot of times I left disappointed though. Because the forecast called for snow. And in Raleigh, North Carolina, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to snow. And so that anticipation many times led to disappointment where I'm waiting for that first flake and all that I see is rain. Now, there were some good memories, and they're along the way. But when I saw that first flake, man, I erupted. And then I saw another and another, and it was like, yes, it's coming. And everybody in the house knew, it's snowing! Come and see! Well, as we turn to our text today, no, we're not going to look about the weather. I didn't choose, like, let's go to the snow passage today. It's my opportunity to preach. We're not going to look at the weather, but we are going to see. We're going to see two encounters with Jesus at the, at the temple, with Anna and Simeon. And as I, with eager expectation and anticipation, stared and squinted and, and waited for that flake to fall, they were waiting for the arrival of Jesus with such and similar anticipation. And in our story today, they actually saw him. And so what we're going to do today, we're going we're to go and look at their encounter with Christ and, and what it teaches us about who Jesus is and what God's doing in this world. And as I saw that snow and I erupted and I burst into celebration, we're going to see that, that Christ in seeing and embracing him leads to similar kinds of results. And so before we read today, I just want to, I want to pray. Because I, I want to pray that God would give us clarity to see and respond to the greatness of Christ today. So join me as I pray. Father, your word is living, it is active, and as we read here in a few moments, you will be speaking to us. God, would you help us not to just hear with our physical eyes, ears and see with our physical eyes, but God, would you open up the, the eyes and ears of our hearts that we would truly see Jesus we would hear from you, and then we would respond and worship this morning. God, would you have your way in each and every one of us, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we read through our text today, the main point that I want you to get is going to be clear. And the point is this. We should all embrace Jesus as God's gift of redemption for all people. We should embrace Jesus as God's gift of redemption for all people. Let's read the word here. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, this is the word of God. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, speaking of Jesus here. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and with the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God, and he said, Lord, now are you letting your servant depart in peace according to your word? For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father 
and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and as a sword, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The Word of God. Well, here's what I want us to do today. As we walk through this passage, and as we observe what these two prophets teach us, about Jesus, if we're going to embrace Jesus as God's gift of redemption for the world, I believe there's three things that we've got to learn about him and we've got to believe about him today. And the first one is this. Jesus is God's gift of redemption first for Israel. Let's go back to the text here. The, the structure of this passage is pretty clear. You have the setting here describing how Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus were uh, brought to the temple. Then we hear about Simeon and how God was working in Simeon to bring him to the temple. And then we have Anna here and how God was working in Anna to get all of them and their paths crossing and converging here at the temple. As we set the stage here, looking back at verse 22, um, it says that the reason Mary and Joseph were coming to the temple is because there were a number of ceremonies from the Old Testament that they were coming to obey. So we see here it says in 22, they came for their purification. The first one is the purification of Mary. You see, if you were to go back and read Leviticus chapter 12, you would see that when a woman gave birth, she would have been unclean for 40 days and she was prohibited from coming anywhere near the temple. But then after 40 days, she was to come to the temple and bring a burnt offering and a sin offering for her purification. And that's exactly what Mary and Joseph are doing here. We see here in verse 24, it says, And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now what's not extremely clear here, unless you went back to Leviticus, is, is the offering for most people would have been to bring a lamb and then a turtle dove or a pigeon. They didn't bring a lamb. In the law, there was provision for those who couldn't afford a lamb. If you couldn't afford a lamb, the law says it, then you were to bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. So what's this teaching us about Mary, Joseph, and Jesus? Jesus isn't arriving on the scene as the king who owns everything and has all the money. He's arriving, as we've seen throughout these passages, in great humility. In fact, he's, he's coming and relating here to the poor, the ones he primarily came to save, as we look later on in Luke chapter 4. It's, it's, it's those that are poor in spirit. It's those that are broken. It's those that are experiencing injustice. He's coming to overturn what has been done wrong. This is who Jesus is. And so you have them coming to, to do the purification ceremonies. You also have them presenting and dedicating and consecrating Jesus to the Lord. You'll see here, it continues in... Um, in verse 22, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. In verse 23, is quoting Exodus 13, and it says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Additionally, you could go look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. That firstborn male, they were to come and present to the Lord and consecrate to the Lord and to ministry in the Lord's service, ironically. They don't 
exactly understand all the implications of them presenting Jesus to the Lord. In fact, he's already consecrated to the Lord much more than they actually understand being the Son of God. But the point here is Luke is describing this is what gets them to the temple. He's presenting Mary and Joseph as pious Jews and law-abiding Jews. They were seeking to be obedient to the Lord, and that's what brings them to the temple. Now let's hit pause there, and let's come over here to the first encounter, the story of Simeon and see what God was doing there. Go on down there. You'll see in verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. What's interesting here is the information that Luke gives us about Simeon. He doesn't tell us what he does. We don't know his vocation, and we don't know his age. What does he tell us? Look at the text. It says, And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon was another exemplary saint. He was righteous. He was devout. He was one that feared the Lord. Additionally, it says here that he was one who longed for the consolation of Israel. Another word for consolation here could be comfort. He longed for the comfort of Israel. What Luke is cueing us in here is if you were to go back and read the, the prophets, particularly go read through Isaiah, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 51, he's going to talk about how God is going to comfort Israel. He's going to bring comfort. He's going to bring consolation. Simeon is one who had read the Old Testament and actually understood it and believed it. He was waiting for God to do what he said he was going to do. He was waiting for God to bring fulfillment to everything that he had talked about in this Old Testament. He was longing and waiting for the consolation of Israel. Additionally, it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit worked in a very unique way in his life in a number of ways. First of all, look down here. It says in verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit had revealed this to him. Simeon, before you die, you're going to see the promised one that you've been reading about, the one you've been longing for, the one you've been waiting for, the one you've been crying out, Lord, send him. You're going to see him. Imagine that. I mean, this is so much greater than me seeing on the Weather Channel, it's going to snow in a few days. You're going to see Jesus, the Christ, and all of that he brings, the promises related to him, before you die. The Holy Spirit continues his work. It says, verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple. The Spirit had revealed, you're going you're to see the Christ before you die, but additionally, this Spirit was at work, and the Spirit was saying, Now. Go to the temple. This story over here that we talked about Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, they had already been going to the temple for her purification. Now the Spirit's working over here. Simeon, it's time. They're headed. You're headed. There's about to be an encounter at the temple. And so Simeon, obedient to the leading of the Spirit, we see here in verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and with appearance brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, he sees Jesus. Mary and Jesus come to the temple. Simeon comes to the temple. It doesn't tell us the, the details of like, is it that one? Is it that one? We just see he sees Jesus. And he takes Jesus into his arms and lifts him up, and he erupts. I'm, I'm screaming, it's snowing, everybody. Simeon's saying, it's Jesus. He's erupting in a hymn of prophetic praise back to God. And this is what he says. Lord, 
I can imagine as he starts to erupt, all of these verses from the Old Testament, all of these promises that he had read and that he had believed, what the Spirit had told him, Simeon, you're not going to die until you see Jesus. He's seen him now and he's crying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. God, you've kept your word. You were reliable. I believed you. You held up your part. And I've seen Jesus. God, have your way with me now. If you need to take me right now, I'm in your hands. I can depart, I can depart in peace because I've seen Jesus. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Let me just hit pause here. God always keeps his word. He will never fail you in his words. So practically, I don't know what you all have brought today to this room. But the way that we respond to the brokenness in life is by clinging to the promises of God. When you are in the depths of despair, it is going to the Word and praying, God, would you grant me faith to believe that you will act according to your Word. And when you believe it, it's like holding up a lightning rod where the Spirit and the Word of God combust and increase faith and God just works and grows and provides in your life. Simeon experienced the faithfulness of God in relation to his word. And he says in verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus here, as he's holding up, Jesus is God's salvation. My eyes have seen it. Here he is that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. I'm going to come back in a few minutes and I'm going to unpack this phrase, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. But for purposes now, I just want us to see that Jesus is God's gift of redemption to Israel. The promises in the Old Testament were to Israel. Simeon is representing all Jews here as one who was longing for the coming of this Messiah, this Christ, and he has seen this salvation. God has provided this gift of redemption to Israel. This is why later on Paul, reflecting back, can say the gospel is the power of God for salvation first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Let's jump forward. I want to go to Anna now. So we've got Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. We've got Simeon right here. There's already been some crossing of paths. Now we're going to throw this third person in the mix here, Anna. I'm going to come back and cover that section that we just jumped over in a second. Anna, it says, and there was a prophetess, Anna. Look at what information Luke gives us about Anna. It's similar to what he tells us about Simeon. She was a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. That's one of the tribes, 12 tribes of Jerusalem, um, of Israel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. Let's assume that she was married 13, 14 years old, which was when you go back and look at history, that's you know probably maybe the age of Mary when she was giving birth to Jesus. If she got married at the age of 13 or 14, it says that she was married for how long? She was married, she lived with her husband seven years. So she's what, 20, 21, when she becomes a widower. And she was a widower, it says, um, and then as a widow until she was 84. You may even have a footnote here. Was Was she a widow until she was 84 years old? Or was she a widow for 84 more years, making her 105 or so? We could go back and forth on what exactly is referring to here. Here's the point. 
Anna was a woman who chose a lifetime of service to God over remarriage. She chose a lifetime of service to God over remarriage, an action that was highly regarded in the first century religious community. Go look and read 1 Timothy 5. And you can go read through what Timothy is, what Paul's telling Timothy about widows in the first century there. And what did she spend her time doing? Continues here. Verse 27. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Come on, women. Amen. Like, this is an example here. I'm not saying come on in a negative way. I'm just saying, like, Anna is being presented as an exemplary woman who was pursuing God. She was dedicated night and day at the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer. Man, we want to pray that God would raise up some Simeons at Redemption Hill and some Annas at Redemption Hill. People who really get and understand and believe God and pursue Him who long and embrace Jesus. And look what happens. Verse 38, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She, she addresses two audiences here. First, she erupts and praise and thanksgiving to God in the same way that Simeon does. When Simeon sees Jesus and he's holding him up and he's blessing God and he's erupting in that hymn of prophetic praise, now we've just thrown Anna in the mix. What we don't know are the details. Like, I don't know, is, is, is Anna, did Anna see Simeon's, what Simeon just did? Or did he, she come in after him? Or she, like, are they just all having a Jesus party like at the temple? To get, I, I don't know. But at some point, Anna sees Jesus, and she first addresses God and overflows in worship. But then second, she turns and speaks of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. One of the reasons that I love this passage is because it teaches us that there were people early in the first century who had read the Old Testament, who got the message, and were waiting for God to provide. How did these people know to wait for the redemption of Jerusalem? I mean, I know we're all Gentiles. Maybe there's somebody that said you here. I don't know. But for the most of us, we're probably Gentiles, and, and we didn't grow up steeped in the Old Testament as a Jew in Jerusalem or Israel. Um, but I think it's tempting for us oftentimes to think negatively on all the Jews in the first century. Now, we do know this. Many of the Jews rejected Jesus, right? Who was one of his primary oppositions, his targets in the, in the Gospels. It's the Pharisees. It's the Sadducees, right? It was the religious sector there. He, he's pounding hard those religious Pharisees who were working in the temple because they look great on the outside, but their hearts, he says, were full of dead people's bones, were empty. They were just a show. But there were some pious Jews who really got the, the message of the Old Testament, and they were waiting. They were reading the Old Testament, and they were hearing and responding and waiting. Just as a side note here, when you leave today, you're going to be handed um, a Bible reading plan. We, we're going to adopt a Bible reading plan as a church in 2017, and there's going to be three options on this plan. If you want to read through the whole Bible next year, you can do it. If you just want to read through the New Testament next year, you can just say, you know what, I'm going to do the New Testament. If you just want to read the Old Testament next year, you can just read the Old Testament. Like, you choose. There, there's a, a lot of different varieties for you to jump in here. But as you think about reading the Bible, how does this change the way you approach the text? Like, the Old Testament was not plan A, and it failed, and God is starting over, and the New Testament would plan B. 
There is one story. There's one plan. And this is affirming that. They got it. They read the plan. And when I read the Old Testament, I ought to be reading with an eye that's preparing me to meet Jesus. Because that's how they read it. Go to the end of Luke. I don't have time today, but Luke 24. After Jesus' resurrection, he's got his disciples around. And you know what he does? He says, he says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And beginning with the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, he interpreted to them everything in the scriptures concerning himself, that the Christ must suffer and die and on the third day be raised. He didn't have a New Testament. Where is he he's sharing and teaching them the Bible from? It was the Old Testament. That was the early church's Bible. And they were preaching the gospel using the Old Testament. I get a little excited here talking about this. Because I'm afraid that too often we read the Old Testament as if it has nothing to do with Jesus. And it's all about Jesus and God's provision of redemption, not just for Israel, but for the world. So as we look at Simeon and Anna, and even though Mary and Joseph in here, here's what we're seeing. Though Simeon and Anna were pious Jews, devout and righteous, they still longed for the redemption that God would provide. They weren't there saying, I'm good. No, they were righteous, devout Jews and knew they still needed Jesus. So Jesus is God's gift of redemption to Israel. He is also God's gift of redemption for the world. Let's go back now. Go back to chapter 2, verse 31. And I want to zoom in on this phrase here. As we return to the end of Simeon's prophetic hymn, for the first time in Luke, Jesus' coming and mission is explicitly related to the Gentiles. Now, they were hints already, but now it's, it's made explicit. What Simeon says here, in verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He here is quoting words similar to Isaiah 49, verse 6. I think we got it on the screen here. Isaiah 49, verse 6 says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That word, a light for the nation, that same word can be translated a light for the Gentiles. And this is speaking of this servant. And so what Luke is doing here with Jesus, we've heard a lot of things about, about Jesus and Luke. We've, we've heard him linked to the Davidic throne. He's going to reign on the throne of David forever. He's going to be the Messiah, the Christ the Lord, he now is being linked with the suffering and victorious servant of Isaiah 40, chapter 40 through 66. This suffering servant who was going to come out of Israel and lay down his life and bring salvation not just to Israel, but he's going to be a light for the nations. Look at how Joseph and Mary respond. In verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. I know we've had a ton of marveling and wondering and all going on. But I mean, just think about this so far. I mean, we've already seen Mary marvel at the announcement from the angel that she's going to give birth as a virgin by the Holy Spirit to Jesus. We've seen the angels who've also appeared to the shepherds, and then the shepherds come and find Joseph, Mary, and Jesus and pronounce to them what the angels have shared. And we've seen wonder and all. Now we see them marveling at the scope of Jesus' mission. His salvation will extend to the ends 
of the earth. Here's the point. The coming of Jesus is for every racial group. It is for every nation. It is for every tribe. It is for every tongue. It is for every people. Look, this is why we exist as a church. This, this is the reason Jesus hasn't returned, because the gospel has not spread to the nations. Matthew 24 tells us, when this gospel has been proclaimed to the nations, then... The end will come. Jesus will return. We are in Act 5 of this story, the church, in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. And the second coming is contingent upon the gospel spreading to the nations. And this is what we're to be about as a church. If you've come to Next, you've heard that we've got three core values. Gospel community, and mission. We want to see this gospel transform lives here in greater Boston. The way that happens is we live in the context of community, and then we live on mission. And this mission starts locally and spreads globally. And so we want to be a church that shakes the nations with the gospel, which if you come back to the way we budget as a church, that's when we're going to send money to support missionaries that are going to the ends of the earth. This is why, like last week, we collected what we call a Great Commission offering, and 100% of it we're sending outside of our church. It's so that the, this, the mission of God, spreading the gospel to the nations, can happen. Christmas is a great time to reflect on the coming of Christ and his plan for the world. Who is it at Redemption Hill that the Spirit of God is going to burden and say, go to the nations? I really believe God is speaking through his word to us. And that we ought to all at least be responding, God, where should you have me make much of you in this world? Everybody ought to be praying that. For me and my family right now, it's Boston. God's saying, you're going to be here. The, the best way you're going to engage in my mission is engaging here. But for some of you, it may mean like Joel and Jen Smith, who spent a couple years and are about to, in the early part of January, head to India to spend their life. That the gospel would go to those who've never heard it. Today may be the day that God speaks to you. My only ask is that you would let him be king and you would respond in obedience to the will of God. Let's go to this third truth. Jesus is a gift of God's redemption for Israel. Jesus is God's gift of redemption to the world. And Jesus is a gift that demands a response. We're going to unpack 34 and 35, and we're going to wrap up and call it a day. So far, we've seen a lot of good news about Jesus. But Simeon's tone and interaction now takes an ominous turn. In verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword, Mary, will pierce your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. As I mentioned earlier, we've heard a lot of good things about what Jesus is going to do. This is the first instance in Luke where we're being clued on. Not everything's going to go well with Jesus. He's going to face opposition. In fact, this is preparing us for the rest of the Gospels where he is going to see opposition. And in fact, he's going to be killed and crucified on a cross. 
Simeon's painting some imagery here for us. And the first imagery that he talks about is this language of rising and falling. In the Old Testament, you could go back to Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. God in the prophets talks about this stone, this Messiah, this promised one is going to be a stumbling stone for some and it's going to be a cornerstone for others. The stumbling stone for, and you see Paul reflect on this. You could go read Romans 9, and you're going to see Paul reflecting, hey, why, looking at Israel and the Gentiles and all of that, he's going to say, for Israel, for, for them, Jesus, many of them was a stumbling stone. They tripped over the stone. They didn't see the stone as the fulfillment of God's promises. They were still headed in a works-based righteousness and stumbled and tripped over it. And so they fell. But for others, like Simeon and Anna, they see Jesus as a precious cornerstone, the fulfillment of the promises, and they place their hope and their trust in it and embrace it. For them, this stone will never lead them astray. Here's what happens with Jesus. He's the great divider. We see that through the Gospels, right? He divides. Not intentionally, but that's what he does. Because you know what? There can only be one true king. So when Jesus preaches and says, repent for the kingdom of God's at hand, you've got a decision to make. Are you going to continue being king? Are you going to let Jesus reign as king? And though this is particularly applied to Israel, it says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. We've already seen that come to pass. But even today, Jesus is the great divider. And some fall and some rise. The reason is, is what the end of verse 35 says. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus reveals what's going on in the heart. Not what's going on on the outside. Here's the deal. You can put on a great show for us today. You can fool me, Tanner, those sitting beside you. But you can't fool God. He knows what's going on in the heart. Hey, and the cool thing about the gospel is you don't have to pretend anymore. The good news about the gospel is you can let all the junk out because the gospel isn't about how good you are. It's about how great Jesus is and what he has done for you and will do and can do for you. And when you continue to hide and cover up and pretend that things are okay, you will not take steps in following Jesus. You take steps in following Jesus when you open up your heart and say, God, here's the junk in my life. Come in and change me and rule and reign and work. And maybe that for you today is your next step. It's to just humble yourself and to fall down and respond to King Jesus and let him rule and reign over everything. There's another ominous note here in verse 35. Simeon turns to Mary and says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. This picture for sword isn't a small little dagger. If you were to look in the Greek, the background here is that this is a large, double-edged sword, and it's graphic. It, like This is going to pierce, and the results are going to be tragic. What he's referring to here, most likely, he doesn't tell us, is probably a combination of two things. One is Jesus says, who are my mother, my father, my brother, my sisters? Who is that? It's those who do my will, right? It's his followers. Jesus is going to cultivate a new community of his disciples with his own priorities. You know, that's going to be hard for Mary. 
But that's going to also result in Jesus' determination and dedication in this mission. It's going to lead to his tragic death, and she's going to see it. He's prepared, Simeon's preparing Mary already for the path, this road that's to come. As we wrap up today, here's what I want to do. Man, as I've pondered and meditated on this passage this week, there's something that I just can't get away from. When we go back and read this ominous note that he has appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, I get it. Like, people are going to oppose Jesus. Like, hey, we get it in New England, right? Like, one of what we say is one of the most unreached, unchurched places in America. Like, we see a lot of opposition. Like, we get used to it, right? People, you know? You may be here today and somebody's brought you and you may say, that's kind of me, I'm opposing Jesus. And a lot of times people do it, um, maybe not aggressively, just out of apathy. I don't even care, you know? It's the apathetic route. You just kind of do your thing, I'm going to do my thing. But here's what I can't get away from. Yes, he's appointed for the fall of many, but he's also appointed for the rising of many. Let me ask you a question. When you do your Rolodex of people in your relational network, your friends, your neighbors, your classmates, your coworkers, what is your assumption of how they would respond to the message of Jesus? Your just initial gut, is it, nope, they would fall, or is it, I think they might rise? Are you determining the outcome of their faith, even before presenting the gospel to them? Are you deciding for them, hey, they're already going to fall, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut? Here's what I can't get away from. Some are going to rise. Do you believe that? Look, we know the end of the story. I could jump forward to Revelation chapter 7, and do you know what it tells us? There are going to be people. It says there is a multitude of people in heaven from every tribe, tongue, language, people. Look, guys, it's going to happen. We know the end of the story. The sovereignty of God is going to ensure that his plan will come to fruition. God is going to cause many to rise and respond and trust in Jesus. Will you believe that? J.I. Packer did some reading this week. He's one of my favorite theologians. Read a book a long time ago called Knowing God. This isn't from Knowing God. It's from his book on evangelism. But he says this. He says, the sovereignty of God and grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful Apart from it, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. But God is sovereign, and some, no, many, will rise. My prayer today is that you leave with confidence in the sovereignty of God. Jesus has come. God sent him, and he is going to save many. And we don't know who those are, but what we are tasked with is to go and tell people and hold out and plead with them to trust in Jesus. So I want you to leave today, and and my prayer is that you can't get away from these words. Some will rise. Some will rise. Yeah, don't be discouraged when some fall, but some will rise. J.I. Packer continues on. He says, this ought to give, it ought to affect us in three specific ways. And the first one is this, it should make us bold. It should make us bold. Some will rise. Your neighbor may rise. Your classmate, your parent may rise. Two, it should make us patient. Packer says this, it would be a complete 
failure and distrust in the sovereignty of God and the love of man to, to just stop when, when initially you share and you get resistance. No, don't give up. It ought to make us patient. Third, it ought to make us prayerful. Because you and I can't save anybody, but we know God can. I can't think of no greater gift that you could give someone this Christmas than to tell them about the promised one of the Old Testament who has come and that you might find redemption. This is why we exist as a church. May God instill boldness, patience, and constant prayer in us and through us for his fame. Let's pray. Father, hmm, you are good. Thank you for sending Christ. And God, though we weren't at the temple that day when Simeon and Anna saw the arrival of Jesus and his dedication and presentation to you. You reveal Jesus to us through your word. God, I pray today that you would give us even greater clarity and eyesight to Jesus than even Simeon and Anna had as we see Jesus in your word as we hear about him and respond. God, I pray for that person in here today. I'm just assuming there's probably somebody here that might even say, I'm probably pretty opposed to Jesus. God, I pray that you would do your work of making Jesus clear to them through the power of your Spirit and help them to respond and believe in Jesus. That Jesus for them today wouldn't be a stumbling block causing them to fall. But he would be a precious cornerstone whom they can place their faith and trust in. God, would you draw them even today? And God, for the rest of us, God, help us to respond the way Simeon and Anna did with eruption and praise, and thanksgiving, and, and celebration at Christ. And God, help us to embrace Christ as our Redeemer and Savior, and to hold Him out as a gift to all those around us. God, have Your way in us. Use us that the gospel might touch the nations. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.